Hello, everyone, and welcome to another week of Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, primarily a podcast about classic pro wrestling, usually from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. This week is going to be about the summer of 1983, once again, with the World Wrestling Federation, the summer of 1983, with all kinds of great audio and great stuff from both Steve Generelli and I. Both Steve and I lived through this era. I went to the Boston Garden every single month. Went to a bunch of spot shows, watched as much TV as I could, so I think we're two pretty good guys to listen to. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to check out our Facebook group, to join it, to be part of it. Pictures, results, all kinds of cool talk. If you have a question about wrestling in general, you are more than welcome to ask it. Uh, Just go to Facebook, put in Stick to Wrestling, and you will find the group immediately. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. And if you would like to donate to this podcast, no amount is too much, no amount is too little uh just paypal me at pro wrestling archives at gmail.com john Ware, thank you for your generous contribution and now on to part two of our discussion of 1983 world wrestling federation the summer of 1983 a red hot year for the wwf let's go all right let's have some here's some our audio here is mr fuji and captain lou albano on buddy rogers corner Ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week is half owner at one time of the world's tag team title, Mr. Fuji. Mr. Fuji tells me that he's bringing something new into wrestling. This will be something that no wrestler today can put up with, stand, and everyone that meets him will go down in defeat. I, for one, well, I just can't believe it yet, but I'd like to know a lot more about it. Well, Japanese Emperor, first of all, Mr. Rogers tell you to have respect for Honorable Mr. Fuji, famous samurai warrior. Let me tell you, Rajasan, it's no secret. Why? Before Pearl Harbor, it was big secret. Now, what happened? Now, I come America. It's big secret for you, American opponent. You respect the great samurai warrior, Ninjan, great assassin. In ring, assassin opponent, I make him suffer and make him scream like pig for the Emperor Banzai. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. I guess. It- we're all going to learn something new, and with that, we'll go back to ringside wrestling. I always loved Captain Lou Albano doing that that Japanese gibberish that he did. <laughs> we know we know what his favorite MTV video is, and it's not girls just want to have fun. It's uh, I'm turning it's Japanese now. <laughs> Uh, he was he was always great great in that role, uh, but by this point, Mr. Fuji had Fu- Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito showed up in the WWF summer of 1981. They had their run at the top, and Saito's long gone, and Fuji's still around and is getting television time. Like I, I didn't understand it. I kind of don't understand it to this day. Poor Saito going to the AWA, getting involved with that thug Ken Patera and, a, and that, that, that cinder block being thrown through the window of a McDonald's. It's an outrage. 
Ah, uh, they just wanted cheeseburgers. Just give them their <laughs> cheeseburgers and let it be done. You know, one thing, Steve, I, I noticed as I was putting this show together is not a lot happened really in the WWF summer of 1983. Well, Things were happening like the Morocco Snooker feud, you know, like the Backland Slaughter feud, Andre versus Stud feud. But the the table had already been set for those feuds. Like we didn't really get a lot of angles in 19, in the summer of 1983. Like, you know, they were already set to go. I kind of think, you know, I kind of think you're seeing this transition that, you know, the elder Vince McMahon is still there on the scene. The sale has gone through. Um, Vince, Vince is starting to put his changes, you know, in motion. For instance, on this Spectrum show that we just talked about a few moments ago, you saw Blassie came to the ring with Steel. You saw the Grand Wizard escort uh, Slaughter for his match at the Spectrum. Uh, back in our day, when you and I started, we would never see the managers at the, at the house shows. But Vince Jr. is starting to implement his changes. Uh, we saw a lot of the uh, these shows that we're watching and talking about. I saw a lot of guys in the front row that had WWF T-shirts on, WWF baseball caps. So the influence of Vince and the people he's bringing on board, the marketing people, you're seeing a lot of these changes in motion. And as Vince, uh, the elder Vince is being phased out, and unfortunately his health issues and things would become a factor as we go into 84. Vince Jr. is really in charge, and he's got a new regime with him, a lot of marketing people. Well, a couple of things. Uh, number one, they were, from what I understand, they were promoters who would call Vince Sr., who were a bit concerned about, you know, Vince Jr.'s ambitions. And Vince Sr. would lie on, on his son's behalf and say, no, he's not, he's not going to expand nationally. He's not going to come try to take your territory away. What are you talking about? You know, and he, he allegedly he had said this until his death. But number two, you had mentioned, um, that the managers, generally didn't go on the road with the wrestlers. They did, ma- appeared on TV, and then they appeared in Madison Square Garden, and that's it. And in Madison Square Garden, you know, before the match started, they were escorted to the back. I remember my first ever wrestling show, December 10th, 1976. It was the masked executioners defending the championships against Chief J. Strongbow and Billy White Wolf. And the executioners come out, and I'm like, where's Albano? I'm like, ask the people around me, where's Captain Lou Albano? And they're like, he doesn't come here. And I'm like, he's their manager. What are you talking? I'm 10 years old here, right? He's their manager. What are you talking about? I, I lied. I was 11. Um, I, you know, I, I just didn't get my mind around the concept that no, Captain Lou Albano was not traveling to North Attleboro, Massachusetts, a little town in the middle of nowhere. You know, that's just not how it worked. Well, I was lucky enough to see him finally. I think uh, the f- first time I might have seen him was like 81. He was uh, in a tag team match. I think it was like him and one of the Moondogs against uh, Martel and Gurria. <laughs> but so we got to see his great wrestling in person. And uh, over the years, he'd start to make other appearances and then before you knew it he'd be uh you know in the cindy Lauper video so uh yeah but you, know, you really enjoy uh you really enjoy those classic three managers and anytime anytime you get to see him you really feel uh it's, a, it's really a treat 
Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm sure when you saw him, it was one when when one of the Moon Dogs was having visa problems. Oh yeah, Sailor exactly, White. exactly. And there was another match too where uh, he was there. I think he was thrown into a tag match with George Steele, and there's a rather rotund lady at ringside with a big purse, and she was uh, actually it was almost like a riot. I mean, she was chasing Albano with his big purse and trying to hit him with it, and. Uh, they ended up, the police ended up escorting them out, uh, Albano and Steele. But uh, it, it just, this, this lady was not afraid of Lou Albano. She was getting right in his face. Was this in? Uh, Binghamton. Binghamton? Yeah. It was, it was a pretty wild night there. Uh, I, 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 was worried, <laughs> I was worried for that poor lady's health. I really was. Oh, man. Crazy nights in Binghamton. <laughs> All right. So what I was what I was saying was like not much was happening. I mean, in terms of angles and stuff. I mean, we have the TV from the Allentown a- Agricultural Hall. Only two things to talk about. Number one, Tony Atlas makes his return to the World Wrestling Federation. Steve, Tony Atlas was over like crazy with me. Uh, I didn't know that he quote unquote couldn't work, but I saw him as a potential NWA or WWF champion, and when he's back. I'm kind of I'm kind of thinking, you know, okay, are we going to have a transitional champion and, and then have the belt go over to Atlas? He had just turned 30 years old, which I didn't know at the time, but I knew he was young. And, you know, that's how over he was with me. Well, uh, I get I guess he is probably a little more over with you than me, just because I never really thought of him being like a, a champion. Um, I mean, definitely a great power lifter great bodybuilder type and everything like that and definitely um i was still thinking about him as a main eventer and i guess i was a little surprised when they eventually you know, paired him with rocky johnson and the tag team but they, you know that really seemed like a, a good team up for him because you know tony was good at brawling and good at the, the weightlifting part but uh rocky johnson you know added that nice feature of doing the actual wrestling part you know you need somebody to wrestle in there and uh he definitely uh, carried the load on that team you know i remember before tony atlas returned to the wwf he was in georgia and he had a series of matches against rick flair and they you know were on tbs together and of course you know every time rick flair shows up you know you, you ask yourself okay you know how what are the chances of the championship really changing hands like is you know is is tommy rich going to beat rick flair this sunday night in atlanta probably not but when tony atlas was going against uh, rick flair beginning of 1983 i was like you know maybe this could be the night that that's how over he was with me i i, I get i get them and in the minority here but i love tony atlas. well i don't blame you because i mean we had seen him manhandle hulk hogan i mean he we had seen him uh, power power slam hulk hogan about his head so i mean that would for any now that we were marks i guess maybe we were marks but we were we were definitely believers that man if he could do that he could really do anything hey look i mean we know there's a trick to it okay we know you you do a push-up on the guy's shoulders and whoa i'm up in the air but that's still put even with the trick putting hulk hogan over your head you got to be strong man Very, very impressive move all right. And the other part is the mass superstar debuts with the Grand Wizard as his manager, the first masked wrestler or the first masked heel in a long time to get a, a singles push in the WWF. I can't even think of who the last one was before him. Maybe the spoiler. Yeah, I think he was. Uh, 
that's a good call on the spoiler. I think the spoiler was the last one to get a championship match. And, and it's really uh, amazing in retrospect that here's Backlund about to end his run as, as champion. It, or, you know, it run for about six years. This is the only mass challenger he would face, really. So it's kind of amazing. Yeah, the Backlund, the only one. I do know that uh, Executioner number one, I think, got a title shot against Bruno in Long Island, and it wasn't the result of like a battle royal right. or anything like that. And I think in Baltimore, Executioner number two, uh, same circumstances. It was a scheduled match, had a championship match against uh, Bruno in 1976. But they were not major singles uh, challengers. They were a tag team. This is totally different. Well, well, Backlund knew how to defeat a mass wrestler because he had had a uh, when when the top challengers were avoiding Backlund when he was just an up and comer on TV in the ah. 76 77 period. He did wrestle uh, the Golden Terror, uh, aka Pete Doherty. I, you know, I had to call up Dave's, uh, Dave Meltzer's old IATA show back in like 2000, and I asked that dumb question, <laughs> who was the Golden Terror? But I still didn't know because the internet was still in its infancy, and that little piece of information had yet to bleed out. All right, I'll tell you what, for more audio, for review purposes only, more Buddy Rogers Corner with Big John Studd. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, my guest is most controversial wrestler I believe today Big John Studd John let me ask you something I believe it's a hot item what I heard I want you to listen now and listen carefully I heard now I did not see this did Andre the Giant slam you no 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 that's nothing but rumor the mayor can't even get me halfway up hey talk about slamming me not only do I have a hard time getting that chicken's name on a contract, once I get him on a contract and I corner him in the ring, I gotta fight to keep him in the ring. He's afraid of John Studd. He knows, and everybody out there knows, that the giant in professional wrestling is six foot 10, 364 pounds of John Studd. There is no way he'll ever slam me. Well, John, that's just what I heard. But ladies and gentlemen, we'll go back to ringside wrestling. Those are just rumors. <laughs> Give Stud credit. You hear the fans going nuts during this segment. Yeah, I mean, it was such a, such a you know, I was going to say nicer time. Not a nicer time, but a simpler time, I guess. Is yes. The fans were were really, um, you know, happy to be engaged in this feud. It wasn't the greatest feud, but but they, it definitely captured the imagination of the fans in Allentown and the TV taping cities. No, I mean, you know, once again, I've mentioned this before, like I... I could watch 10 matches back in 1983 and, and one of them, I would say, okay, that was a good match. And one of them, okay, that was a bad match. I had no idea that big John stud, you know, couldn't work as they say. Anyway, Baltimore civic center. Now here's something that's impressive, right? Mm -hmm. They're running Landover and Baltimore 
not at the same night, but at the same time, within a couple of weeks from each other, and they're still drawing well. Um, the main event for this show, Bob Backlund uh, fights Sergeant Slaughter to a double DQ. Ivan Koloff defeats uh, the Tonga Kid. And the final match is, again, a, a crazy six-man tag. Andre the Giant, Rocky Johnson, and Jimmy Snuka defeating all three Samoans. I mean, are the Samoans ever going to defend those tag team titles, or are they just going to be doing six-man tags all summer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they should have been stripped of the belts when you think about it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I just remember this being the summer of all kinds of crazy, you know, six-man, eight-man, ten-man tag team matches. All right, once again, review purposes only, Buddy Rogers Corner with Tony Atlas. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This week, my guest is Mr. USA, Tony Atlas. Tony, it's not been too long ago that I seen you down south, and believe me, if ever I was impressed with a man's body, it was yours, and by golly, it hasn't changed. Yes, it has changed. It even got better. So I'd like to have you tell the folks just what it takes to get this body. Well, first of all, Mr. Rogers, I want to thank you very much for that compliment, and a compliment coming from a man, a great champion such as yourself, make me feel real good for all the hard work that I've done. But as I say a thousand times before, I owe everything that I did to the people, you know, because sometimes you get off an airplane, you don't feel like getting in there doing your best, but when the people get behind you and cheer for you and make you just get out there and do your best, you, you end up doing more than what you came to do. You know, I just hold, I just like to consider myself being a people champion, you know, I, Went away for a while to get some more experience because I came here and I figured I was all ready for WWF, but after I seen the competition that they have like Sergeant Slaughter and Big John Studd and the rest of them, I just went out and got myself some more experience. I hope this time around I'm, I'm ready. I got my head together. I'm ready to get down and do some real serious business. I'm ready for it. Well, as far as I can see, you are ready and you will get that chance. So ladies and gentlemen, with that, we'll go back. The ringside wrestling. Now, right around this time, the Snuka versus Morocco feud for the Intercontinental Championship was in full boil. And I think by this point, I had figured out that Snuka was not winning the Intercontinental Championship. And I do remember in 1983 thinking, wow, we might be getting a Don Morocco or Magnificent Morocco versus Tony Atlas feud by this point. And again, two guys I saw as elite wrestlers you know two guys i thought could have won the world championship and i was thinking maybe we'd see that feud but never wasn't wasn't meant to be steve yeah i i've heard over the years things about tony atlas about uh missing dates and some some unreliability and i guess that's probably what took him out of the championship picture i mean they did give him the tag team champs with rocky johnson and and of course those two had friction with each other and then they started missing dates or or, or tony missed some dates i think and and then that that really kind of pulled the rug out from rocky johnson as well and that was an unfortunate situation it, it is because everyone not everyone i've spoken to tony atlas is you almost universally liked as as liked as a person in the wrestling business could be. Everyone's got heat with somebody. Okay, I don't mm-hmm. care who it is, but Tony was one of those guys that you know everyone liked, and it just sucks, frankly, that he became you know he that he had the demons that he did. 
Oh, yeah. I know um, recently on the Brian Solomon's show, he mentioned uh, he had had uh, Savoldi, Angelo Savoldi on and talked about how uh, they, you know, he couldn't really afford that the ICW couldn't really afford to pay Tony Atlas what he was worth. So, uh, you know, Savoldi had been friends with Vince and he called him and said, hey, can you can you give Tony a job? And that's when they brought him back as Saba Simba. But apparently he didn't like that role. And that was around 89 or so. And he didn't like doing that. And then he eventually went kind of jumped to WCW very briefly. And then after that, he was just around the fringes of wrestling. And, and Vince brought him back another time when he was kind of like a, um, like a kind of a jokester uh, around 2006 or so. He was one of the kind of like background guys with Mark Henry, I think. Uh, and they gave him another run. So he, he's, he's always been liked. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that point. You know, you bring up Ryan Solomon. He was in West Warwick, Rhode Island yesterday. Uh-huh. That is about an hour drive for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I see on Twitter early in the morning that, hey, I'm in West Warwick, Rhode Island. And I'm like, damn, why didn't I know about this beforehand? Because I had stuff to do yesterday. And I would have totally pranked Solomon. I would have gone to this convention and just not identified myself. Hey, the book. Oh, and then, like, you know, let it out that, hey, you're talking to John McAdam, right? <laughs> But I couldn't, you know, I, I, I had, had other plans. I'm massively disappointed. Maybe next time. But anyway, well, I saw a picture so- of him there at the, at the show. And I, I, I really want to get that pro wrestling FAQ book that he did a few years ago. I, I don't have that one. I have to get that myself. So. I I do have it, so I have I have, I don't have the chic book, but I, I would have bought it yesterday, especially if I would have gotten a a signed copy from the author. <laughs> so big shout out to Brian, and like I said, you know maybe next time, mm-hmm. Philadelphia Spectrum, or not to belabor this point, fourteen thousand fans in the middle of the summer. That is so darn impressive. Uh, the main event is let me see Jimmy Snuka against Don Morocco via Cub. Jimmy Snuka beats Don Morocco by countout, so we've got that feud going. Swede Hansen is the guest referee. The Samoans, my goodness, defend the WWF tag team titles against Rocky Johnson and Salvatore Belomo, a sub for uh, a sub for SD Jones, and then Bob Backlund defeats Sergeant Slaughter via countout because he applied the cross face chicken wing as Slaughter is on the ring apron. So again, oh, and the Invaders defeat Ivan Koloff and Don Kernodal. So again, Steve, the WWF is on fire. Yeah, it just it just it is a deep roster. I mean, a deep roster of talent at this point, and uh, in in it's the, the classic WWF towns: your Philadelphia's, your uh, Landover, Baltimore, the Garden. Um, I mean, we haven't mentioned in the show Nassau Coliseum or the Meadowlands, but I'm sure if they went there with one of these big feud matches with uh, Snuka and Morocco, I'm sure they would have sold out too. Uh, absolutely. All right. Let, now let's head another Buddy Rogers corner for review purposes with Andre the Giant. This one's really dumb. <laughs> it is. Ladies and gentlemen, this week my guest is none other than the greatest attraction wrestling ever had, Andre the Giant. Well, I know each and every one of you have thought that this man's accomplished things. Well, let me just show you and read off to you the different things that he's really done. Right here on this number one trophy, 
This is from a promoter in Australia, Mr. Jim Barnett. He acknowledges that Andre the Giant has promoted and delivered constant sellouts for 10 solid years in Australia. Also from Japan, the centerpiece. It reads that Andre the Giant has met, defeated every sumo wrestler, every wrestler in the world. And on top of that, ladies and gentlemen, let me, let me tell you that for 14 solid years, Andre has never had his shoulders pinned or never beaten by any wrestler in the world. I know you've all heard about Mrs. Gandhi in India. It's this trophy right here. She said that the people in India have never seen the likes of a superb athlete like Andre the Giant. And last but not least, from the country came from France, which I believe is this one, and the plaques behind. They all say, we love Andre and we hope you love him as much as we do. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, let me say, Andre, we all love you. I love everybody too. And it's my pleasure to come back here and to perform in this ring and in the States. And I like to wrestle the longer I can do it. And I will be happy here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Believe me, I've got goosebumps. And with that, we'll go back to ringside wrestling. Uh, Buddy Rogers, forgetting that we're in the entertainment business over here. I'm sure you've all heard about Mrs. Gandhi, Steve. Well, that was that was the top movie of 1983. It was Gandhi, I think, was the Oscar <laughs> winner that year. So maybe that's why they dusted off that reference. But uh... Uh, Steve, every sumo wrestler in the world, every wrestler in the world, oh, Andre's yeah. beaten. Well. You know, you, know tough one. You, you you mentioned this a few shows ago that, that they were every time that they said something to that effect or every time they said that Andre is undefeated, they were kind of making an investment of sorts. So when that day would come that he'd wrestle Hulk Hogan in the kind of the battle of the immortals, uh, they, they really got their money's worth out of that, all that investing that they did. I, I I did not see it coming until the very end of 1986 when, you know, I mean, they were dropping hints the size of, you know, nuclear bombs that Andre was about to turn. And I did not see, the, see it coming. And, you know, I mean, that I mean, finally, you know, you've, you're putting money in that piggy bank every single time you mention that Andre's undefeated. And, you know, with with WrestleMania three, they cracked that piggy bank open. Good for them. Yeah. I mean, it, it's also funny that. um the AWA of all places, they um, supposedly had t- tinkered with that idea. And I, I, I guess the way the wrestling world was behind the scenes, I'm imagining that Vern would have had to got Vince senior's permission to pull the strings, to do a, a feud like that in the AWA. Maybe Vince wouldn't have gone for it. I don't think he would have. And I, I absolutely think that 
any promoter who wanted to do something like that would have to go through Vince McMahon Sr. And Sr. would not have gone along with it. In the wise decision. So he could make the money. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Now, this is my piggy bank, Vern. (laughs) All right. Uh, No attendance figures for these shows, but WWF goes to San Diego Sports Arena. Main event is Andre the Giant and Jimmy Snuka defeating Big John Studd and Don Morocco. Uh, Back to Los Angeles, no attendance given, but the uh, Andre versus John Studd in a $10,000 body slam match and Jimmy Snuka against Don Morocco. Uh, Bob Backlund did not make these trips. And one thing, Steve, that I noticed right around this time is that longtime WWF stalwart uh, Baron Mikel Cicluna, who had been in the WWF since 1972, uh, was one of the tag team champions, and his role was getting smaller and smaller every year. He seems to have retired. He's gone. Well, um, from my understanding, I think uh, Davey O'Hannon had helped him get a job uh, delivering the New York Times, uh, like the truck that would pick up all the newspapers and take him to the different newsstands or whatever. So he got a job with benefits, and and, um, I don't know if he did any other wrestling on the side after that. I mean, probably not, but... uh, uh, but yeah, definitely Baron Mikel Cicluna, uh, one of the all-time greats in the WWF. I mean, yeah, I mean, he had been there since the time that I had first started watching. And by probably the end of 1981, early 1982, he really started to look old. I mean, really old. Well, he, he was very, uh, uh, like you say, an older guy, but he was very lean. I mean, a very athletic looking build. And he was a very tall guy, too. Um, he's one of those guys that, that, Really, before you and I got into wrestling around 76, 75, I mean, his big push days were long gone. He was a TV enhancement guy. But, you know, going back to the 60s, he was considered a very credible uh, worker in the in the late 60s, mid 60s. Yeah. And when, you know, when I, I mean, when I say he starts to look old, I mean, look, it's going to happen to all of us. It's happened to me. Trust me. Um, you know. It's just, you know, he's an athlete. It's supposed to be a professional sport, and he's he's noticeably aged. And, like, you know, I mean, good for him. I did hear that he got a job as a delivery driver. I had no idea. Uh, it was done through Davey O'Hannon. So, you know, good on Davey for, for doing that uh, for him. Yeah, Davey O'Hannon was a really good guy and um, one of the uh, kind of uh, great uh, underrated guys in WWF history uh, as far as just a uh, real team player, I guess. Yeah, totally. He was one of those guys who was there in 1976 when I first started watching. And, you know, he he drifted in and out of the business, uh, it looked like. But, you know, Davey, Davey seems like a really good guy on Facebook. With that, let's go to more audio for review purposes. This crazy interview uh, backstage with Cal Rudman and George the Animal Steel. <laughs> Before the match, Cal Rudman had a chance to talk with George the Animal Steel. Cal Rudman, and I want to interview George the Animal Steel. George the Animal Steel, I spoke to classy Fred Blassie, the Hollywood fashion plate, and he assured me it was okay for you to come in for an interview. He, he, uh, he's not here tonight. Blassie! Yeah, Blassie said okay. Blassie! Yeah, okay. All right, now you are... The, please don't set yourself on fire Blassie! in front of me. All right, now, now I have a question for you. You are, in, yeah, yeah, you are fighting Salvatore Bellomi. He's a master of European leg wrestling. How do you plan to deal with it tonight, George the Animal Steel? Deal? 
I heard him bad, bad. Bless his say, hurt, bad, hurt. Uh, no, no, you've got to give me how you plan to meet the combat. What do you plan to do? How do you plan to deal with it, George? Look at me, George. How do you plan to deal with the European leg wrestling, the drop kicks, the flying? Kick! Yeah, go ahead. Kick! Yeah, go ahead. Okay, more. Yeah, yeah. Kick. Yes, yes. And, and what will you do? Kick! Yeah, yeah. And then what? After you kick, what, what, what are you going to do? Kick! All right. Thank you very much, George the Animal Steel. Kick! Thank you very much. Uh, uh, thank you. I don't know, Steve. How would you counter Salvatore Belomo's European leg wrestling? <laughs> Uh, a flying hammerlock, of course. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. This in, this interview was way stickier than anything in pro wrestling, really. I mean, this you know crossed lines, and I know we we looked back at it forty years ago, and it was nothing compared to some of the stuff they were doing in nineteen eighty four and nineteen eighty five. But I mean, Steel's out there, you know, with a lighter and. He, he, and Cal Rudman's telling him not to burn himself, and then he's got his hands around Rudman's throat, and Rudman's kind of laughing, and Rudman's got this rug on his head that Bruno Sammartino would be ashamed of. I mean, it was just a crazy segment that the audio doesn't do justice to. Well, you know, thanks to uh, Brian Last, I mean, we, we all of a sudden, we gained a new appreciation for people like Larry Nelson, and uh, I think Cal Rudman's another one, another one of those guys. I mean, he had... Uh, a very unique uh, perspective as an interviewer and uh, diff- came from a different background coming from the music business. And uh, I, I actually, I look back fondly now at those uh, Cal Rudman skits. They're kind of, they're kind of funny. I always, I always liked Cal Rudman because he seemed like he was having the time of his life out there. It wasn't like anyone dragged him into this. You know, it was. It felt like it was nowhere he would rather be. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, you know, just like how Lou Albano enjoyed being with Cindy Lauper and doing the girls just want to have fun. Uh, he came from music and wanted to get into wrestling, and he really in, in, enjoyed himself every every moment. Yeah, he and he was a very big deal in the music business. Mm-hmm. All right, now if you like Cal Rudman, here's Cal Rudman in the Magnificent Morocco. Cal Rudman here to interview Don Magnificent Morocco. Morocco, you are standing between me and the camera and your audience. Excuse me. Thank you very much, Don Morocco. Don Morocco, an incident occurred. Jimmy Superfly Snooker flew over the top rope, grabbed you, drove you into the concrete. This was seen on You know, Cal Rudman, I go to Philadelphia, I see you. I go to Madison Square Garden, I see you. I travel all over the world. I watch Merv Griffin and I see you. And millions and millions of people all over the country look and wait and hold their breath to see me. And everybody's seeing, maybe as you're seeing right now, as the videotape is going over, you're seeing Superfly dive over the ring. You're seeing my body being driven into concrete. Aren't you, Kyle Rudman? You've seen it, haven't you, Mr. Star? You're upset because I come between you and the camera. But what you also see, what you also see and what you also know is that I get back up again. I come back up again. 
See, and if it has to be Washington, D.C., if it has to be Boston, Massachusetts, if it happens to be L.A., California, it don't matter. I have also seen the... Superfly. the I, I have to tell you this. I have seen the blood pouring out of every pore in your body. That's right. That's you right. sure have. You're going to see it again. Because it's going to take blood. It's going to take guts. It's going to take sweat. It's going to take heart. It's going to take everything anybody ever had any place. Because you know why? Why? Because you told me yourself. Yes. You told me in your own words. You told everybody. In my own greatness is only greatness comes to the top. No matter what I would do, no matter where I would be, where I would go, I would be great. I am great. Superfly is the greatest except for who, Cal Rubman? Why, oh, who? You. Answer my question. You got it, brother. Hallelujah. You're finally getting with it. I'm smart. You're finally getting with it. Blood pouring out of every pore of your body. That sounds uncomfortable, Steve. <laughs> well, th again, this is a reminder, listening to Morocco talk, why he was probably the MVP of the entire WWF for 83. I mean, w w this feud with Morocco was so huge and so big and all-encompassing. All it was kind of like the thriller in Manila. Uh, these fighters would never be the same afterwards. Snooker would never really be the same. Morocco would never be the same. I mean, Morocco would go on to wrestle Hogan and even feud with Piper later on after that. Uh, but this was, was a turning point in their careers. I mean, this I, I would think... Maybe, you know, I was, I, this had to be the high point of Jimmy Snooker's career. Absolutely had to be the high point. Morocco, debatable whether or not it was 81 when he was intercontinental champion feuding. And you know what? Not even debatable. This, you're right, Steve. This is the high point of both of their careers. Yeah, it was the, really the zenith, I think, and uh, it, they were never the same. I mean, um, you know, it, it it took a lot out of both of them. I mean, you you watch their performances, and after this, you go into '84, they're 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 uh, what they're able to do in the ring is not nearly as good as what they're doing right now. No, definitely not. All right, I'll tell you what. Let's hear from Jimmy Snuka. After his feud and in Landover, Maryland, against a Magnificent Morocco. Exactly what's going on is his mind as we go to Cal Rudman, along with Buddy Rogers and Superfly Jimmy Snooker. All right, may I speak with Jimmy Snooker? There's no question, Snooker, you should have won the title tonight. That is not a double disqualification. That's the most vicious beating I ever saw ever administered. How do you feel? I'm not worried about the title. All I'm worried about is Don Morocco. Right. He comes first. Right. When I get done with him, mentally and physically, then I can think about the belt. But first thing, brother, what you have done to me, Don Morocco, just remember, brother. Okay, buddy Rogers. You're going to get paid. All right. And paid going to be hell, brother. I, I want to ask Buddy Rogers. Do you want to comment well, on this? Right, right now, Jimmy is terribly upset. He, yeah. He's just not in his right frame right. of mind, yeah. and I can't rightfully. Yeah. You know, rightfully yeah. so. That's the way. But he should have won the title tonight. I, the, when I he, when do the believe was held up. That's a disqualification. I do believe okay. that Jimmy should be okay. champion. I do believe that Jimmy can be champion. Yeah. He's it's, the people's champion, isn't right. he? Right. He certainly is. Okay. But back, Jimmy. What else do you want to say? Did you feel you beat him up enough tonight? Did you hurt him enough? It's never going to be enough. 
when he does this to me. But the most important thing is inside here, brother. It's inside, it's not outside the skin. It's what's inside. Don Morocco. Just remember one thing, brother. When a lion gets hungry, believe me, he's going to eat me. He's going to eat. He's living, but I'm hungry, brother. I am hungry. Okay, back to Gorilla Monsoon. I like the intensity from Jimmy Snooker, but you don't ever say you don't care about the title, Steve. <laughs> I, uh, you don't say that. I, I, I never really thought of Jimmy Snooker much on these interviews, but, but I do like him here as far as the intensity because uh, you really believe he wants to get at Morocco. He wants to kill Morocco. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. I, I totally dig the intensity, especially post-match where he's he's out there you know, bleeding all over himself and screaming about Morocco. All right, September 13th, so we're getting near the end of the summer. Uh, they have the taping in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Eddie Gilbert makes his return to the WWF after what was what I understand was a horrible car accident. Yeah, and um, I, I guess this is about the time that they uh, – had they already tried to promote him as Backlund's protege, or were this, was this the beginning of that? Uh, no, he was Bob Backlund's protege. I remember, like, end of 82, Okay, uh, he started coming out with Bob Backlund. Okay, and, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he definitely um, – you know, it's always good to have him around, but – but, I mean, he, he'd become a much better worker as a heel in other promotions like the UWF later on. And I see Iron Sheik returns. Uh, Iron Sheik returns on this taping, and we have no idea what, what a big deal that's going to be. But one thing I wanted to say about Eddie Gilbert, you know, he came across on TV at this point as a guy with just no personality whatsoever, just this, you know, shy country bumpkin kid. And <laughs> just talk about, talk about art, real life being completely different than art. I mean, Eddie was, Eddie was something else. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it's funny how the wrestlers have to play a certain role, even though it could be a complete 180 from who they really are. Yeah, uh, you know, and Eddie was exactly that. And as time would go on, uh, really, the next year, 1984, when he joined the Fabulous Ones and turned on Tommy Rich, that's when he started to show off that personality. Yeah, he 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 needed to be that uh, you know obnoxious small small guy heel that would get under your skin. Uh, you know, as a young uh, baby face type, I mean, all he's going to do over here is just get squashed. I mean, there's really no room for him in the big man's territory. I really believe that if if Bill Watts had not had such bad luck and and had not you know sold out to Crockett because he wanted to get out of the business. I really believe Eddie Gilbert would have turned in 1987 in the UWF, and I think he would have been a great babyface. Really? Like, really? He's the kind of guy who needs to be a heel first, like that whole yeah. Roddy Piper thing. But I, I think he would have been a huge success as a babyface in the UWF. I, I think it would have happened, again, had you know Bill Watts not Gone, well, not gone out of business, but sold the company. Well, that's what they should have done when they brought Missy in for Missy's Manor in 87 after Piper retired. Uh, they could have had those two go heel and maybe eventually turn on baby face after a while. But uh, I think it'd be a, a great heel combination. Uh, yeah, that, that whole Missy's Manor thing was, was <laughs> such a disaster. <laughs> 
I mean, Eddie trying to pull the strings from wherever he was and Missy getting caught in the middle, etc. All right. And the Iron Sheik returns. He had been in the WWF as the great Hussein Arab in 1979 and 1980. He had a great underrated match against Bob Backlund June 4th, 1979 in Madison Square Garden. It, it's been over 40 years and I can't find a, a good copy of that match but it's a really good match um but now he's back and he's just the iron cheek with fred blassie as his manager another guy who the wwf kind of inconspicuously plucked from the georgia promotion yeah he was um you know the, the time about that match that forgotten match from 79 when he was great hussein uh i mean that was such a scientific match with backland it was one of those matches where when it was over with, I mean, you could give both guys a standing ovation because he wrestled so clean. I don't think he really used hardly any uh, heel tactics in that match. And that match took place before the Iran hostage crisis, which was the big news story of uh, late 1979, early 1980. Uh, all right, I'll tell you what, we've got a little more audio uh, for review purposes. Let's hear from Rocky Johnson and Mr. Fuji right before their match in Landover. Cal Rudman here with Rocky Johnson. Rocky Johnson making a return to his hometown, Washington, D.C., where all of his old friends and relatives are here to see him, hopefully in triumph. Rocky, how do you plan to handle Mr. Fuji, a master of the martial arts from the Orient? Well, I'll just tell you this, I'll make it sweet and short. Mr. Fuji, you don't take him very lightly because you said the man is a master in, in martial arts, but I'll tell you one thing, this is my hometown, Washington, D.C., this is where all my people, all my fans, all my friends, and I'm not gonna go out there and lay down for you, Mr. Fuji, or anybody else, and I'm not gonna say, it's going to be easy to get out there and beat Mr. Fuji because it's not. I know it's one of the most toughest battles in my career, but I'll tell you right now, I'm going out there with 210%, and I'm not going to leave that ring until I, can, until I beat Mr. Fuji because I feel if I get defeated, I'm not only defeating myself, I'm letting all my people, all my fans, and all my friends down. And Cal, there's no way in the world I'm going to do that to I can see, Rocky Johnson, crystal clear, you are a man with a plan. Cal Rudman here with Mr. Fuji. Mr. Fuji, we just interviewed Rocky Johnson. Here he is in front of his hometown crowd, his friends, his relatives, everyone he grew up with. And we asked him how he would deal with your oriental martial arts. Now, if you lost to Rocky Johnson in Japan, you would have to commit harikari. How can you possibly defeat Rocky Johnson near the Washington, D.C. area? Let me tell you, Johnson son, and all relative for you, Johnson son. Tonight you lose face to Mr. Fuji. Tonight I embarrass you. I make you suffer. I make you cry. Cry like baby you are. And I will defeat you, Johnson son. You do not know the master of the martial art. You do not know, ninja, samurai warrior, very tricky, very indeed, cripple you, might be two weeks, three weeks, you finish, might be one year, you All right, finish. okay, we heard it, but you got to remember, he would rather die instead of lose to his friends, in front of his friends. He will have his wish granted, sayonara. Okay, we heard it. 
Well, wrestling is definitely taking a silly turn here on USA Network. And I mean, the whole Harry Carey thing, it kind of made me laugh. But at the same time, it's like, you know, once again, you're having a successful product. You have a successful product. Why are you changing it? Why are you letting Cal Rudman do this on national television, Steve? I think it was just Vince's ego. Uh, now that he's really running the show, his father is kind of like fading into the background. Uh, Vince wasn't afraid to bring in these crazy guys like uh, – He'd eventually bring in, uh, who's the guy I'm trying to think from, um, central States, um, slick. (laughs) No, not slick. (laughs) Yeah. That's definitely where he came from. But, uh, that, uh, uh, well, was he an announcer? No, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of, uh, one of Patterson's friends who was, uh, worked uh, in the front office, uh, for a while and he got fired after a while. Uh, I'll have to look that yeah, up. He, but anyway, he's, he's a former wrestler, but he he's uh, one of those guys that's kind of a, a tr- Terry Garvin. Terry Garvin, yeah, Car- Car- That's what Bruno would call him. Characters like Terry Garvin. I mean, you know, it just he, I think Vince didn't have any in that sense. He didn't have any uh, uh, quality control as far as like you know certain people you shouldn't have around. And Terry Garvin had quite a reputation, I guess, as being uh, kind of a wild man. I guess. Uh, yeah, 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 that's a good way of putting it. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit more about the uh, TV taping. Uh, Rene Goulet makes his return. Now, I, there were kind of two Rene Goulets. There was Sergeant Jacques Goulet, who was the heel, mm-hmm. who I always liked. I always thought that was kind of a cool gimmick. And then there was just Rene Goulet, who had been with the WWF in the early 70s. He was one of their tag team champions. He came back in 1980. And my take on Goulet in 1980 was, man, this guy is boring. And he's back, and I'm not really happy about it. Yeah, when he came back this last time, now this time we're talking about, he, uh, you know, would wear a Michael Jackson glove and he was kind of the cheesiest of all heels. Uh, but, you know, he would do this for a couple of years and he'd really become one of their top road agents for a really long time. No, I guess, you know, he was a guy Vince trusted and respected, and that's why they brought him back. And, I mean, Vince must have known what he was doing and must have known that he was going to need guys in his front office. Yeah, and he he had a great track record in wrestling. Uh, you know, um, I think when Legionnaire's disease was a big deal in the late '70s in the United States, he was a Legionnaire tag team wrestler in the yes in the, in the probably WWA promotion. I think it was, and but but yeah, he had lots of great runs through pretty much every territory you could imagine. Yeah, but like I said, even you know when I'm in junior high watching wrestling, and you know he was one of the guys that just you know I circled and said okay this guy's this guy's really boring <laughs> compared to everybody else and you know now knowing what i know he wasn't a terrible worker but now to me i just never got the appeal of him uh now one other thing that happened on this tv taping of course uh eddie gilbert is back and they waste no time having the mass superstar re-injure his neck with the corkscrew neck breaker yeah, it, it, it was uh, to make perfect sense. I mean, I, I don't know, uh, maybe Vince was the only one who knew, but this was a way to uh, show how devastating this hold was that Mass Superstar had. And then if he's going to do it to Backlund later on and soften Backlund up uh, for this big championship match that's going to happen with, with Superstar and then eventually Iron Sheik, it's going to give Backlund a little bit of an alibi for him losing the title and 
and then we'll see where Backlund goes in 84. I'm, at this point, I'm sure Vince thought he would keep him, but you know, we, we know that, um, <laughs> that Backlund was kind of a free agent after a while in 84. We do. And one of these days, I'm going to have a show uh, strictly like audio of Bob Backlund doing Pro Wrestling USA. <laughs> it's going to be the worst podcast ever, I promise. <laughs> no, but yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about this. The 83, the Wrestling Observer newsletter, kind of went nuts over this angle where Eddie Gilbert, who had suffered legitimate injuries in a car accident, and they turned around and used that real-life thing in wrestling. I mean, I always thought it made perfect sense. Eddie Gilbert was Bob Backlund's protege. He hurt his neck in a car accident. And mass superstar, the new number one challenger, it re-injures his neck in a vicious, deliberate manner. Bob Backlund comes out in his weird three-piece suit trying to, you know, help things out with the matter, and he's all sad and stuff. I mean, I thought, you know, it, it made perfect sense. I, I just don't see why people got offended over it. I think a lot of it might have been that a lot of the people who were involved with the Observer and the voting had a personal relationship with Eddie Gilbert. That's the only th- thing I can come up with. Well, that, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, it, it got one of those uh, most disgusting promotional angles of the year awards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what? Come on. Yeah, I, I, I think that you're, you're right. I mean, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe the readership of the Observer was so inside they were friendly with Eddie, I, I guess. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, but... Uh, but yeah, it was it wasn't really offensive, honestly. I mean, if I were in a car wreck, wreck and I had my neck messed up and I was well enough to come back, it would be my idea. Yeah. Hey guys, let's do this. You know, have superstar re-injure me and and pour some gasoline on the Bob Backlund mass superstar feud. You know, I, I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get the. Yeah, at least there was some some real. Uh, you know, um, a real event occurred that you could tie in with the, the feud. I mean, it, it makes sense, really. You think about it. it. It does. All right. I'll tell you what. Uh, more audio for review purposes. Let's hear Don Morocco's interview before his match with Jimmy Snuka at Madison Square Garden. Place, uh, earlier in the locker room area with uh, Don Morocco. plan is a plan, a thought is a thought, a word is a word, moments are moments, they keep telling me, keep looking, don't look anywhere but into the camera, stare into the camera, I've been doing this for 15 years, not looking in the camera, but I have to look into the camera, discipline, discipline Jimmy Snooker, you thought I was going to look away from there for a minute, didn't you, discipline brother, I don't care about cameras, I don't care about action, see here we are, this is it, this is our city, NY, NY, you and me, and everybody, everybody in the world watching, everybody in the world's excited, and even I am paying attention right now, because I haven't looked away from the camera, see what a good boy I've been, because I'm concentrating, and I'm thinking, and I'm doing exactly what I have to do, not look away from the camera. And number two, not thinking about nothing but you, Superfly. Okay, so now you're going to give me a signal when I can stop looking in this stupid camera. And since we believe in equal time here on Stick to Wrestling, let's hear what Jimmy Snuka and Buddy Rogers have to say. Jimmy, it's very imperative. I mean, I can't just demand your attention more than I am right at this moment. 
Jimmy, you can't lose your cool. You can't lose your head. You got to remember all the time. Morocco is a con man. He tries to play on your mind. He tries to get you to do things you shouldn't do. But you know, don't lose your cool. You know you can beat him. You know from the day you stepped in the ring with him that you can beat him. So you will admit to me, you've come to a conclusion. You will not lose your cool. You're definitely right, Madron. I ain't gonna lose my cool. But there's only one concern that's in Jimmy Snooker's mind. What you have done to me. Don Morocco. It's not a good thing, brother. It's a terrible thing that you did. But always remember, this is one moment I'll be waiting for. Just to get you inside that ring with me. And believe me, Don Morocco. It's going to be. It's hard to explain, because only the moment's going to tell. The moment we walk in that ring together and touch each other's body, brother, and you're going to feel the warmness, hateness, feeling, especially in me. Right, Jimmy. I do feel when it gets too tough for him, it'll be just right for you. When you hear them screaming beach bum in the background and you're in the dressing room, you can hear it. You know, Magnificent Morocco is getting some major heat out there. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's so nice to think that uh, these guys really uh, kind of broke in together in, in a way uh, in the early, early 70s, right around 71 or so. They were both uh, in the AWA. They were both really in prelims. And, um, and I think that they were so well-respected even then for their ability that when uh, Vern was running those camps, those famous camps where uh, people like Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat and Iron Sheik uh, learned to wrestle, uh, Billy Robinson used these guys as kind of like their assistants or trainers or what have you. But here, but here we are, you know, 15, uh, or say a dozen years after that, um, they went from being these, uh, young boys in the AWA. Now they're at the top of their profession in the WWF in New York city, headlining Madison square garden, and also really headlining these big buildings throughout the United States. It must've been a great feeling for these guys to come from, uh, kind of a humble beginning the they main evented places like uh you know portland oregon and uh, uh different cities and now here they are the biggest city in the world and they're they're on top of madison square garden that's an excellent perspective and these are two guys that looking back i feel like it just took too long for their their careers to get rolling i mean if you saw snooker in portland like you had to know he was the, the a next big thing but it took him a long time to get out of those mid-majors and into you know the tag team championship at mid-atlantic wrestling which is you know where he first got his first national push you know he was ready way before that and i think the same thing about morocco who who got his big first big push in Florida in 1979. Well, you know, again, and we didn't, we didn't want to beat this like a dead horse, but you know, we know there a lot of the old school wrestling promoters had kind of a racist <laughs> mentality or, or just a little bit, certainly not uh, progressive thinkers. And, uh, 
Um, I'm sure that held their careers back. Uh, Vince McMahon, the elder one, uh, he all he could see was green. He would put anybody in the main event to make money and didn't care about uh, any of that other trivial stuff. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that they could finally get to the, the big stage and play on the biggest stage. No, I, I agree totally. All right, one more card to go over. Baltimore, Maryland, September 17th, 1983. Uh, one match on here. I want to talk about this guy. Samoan Afa defeats Tony Gurria by countout. Steve, in 1983, when I would watch wrestling, I would always think about a guy's career arc. Like, where is he going next? You know, what's the next step? Is it going to be a step up? Tony Gurria, in, at this point, he had been with the WWF. Um, he came back in 1970, the end of 1976, left for a while, I want to say spring 1979, was back summer 1980, and is still here. And he feels like he's, at this point in his career, he's just another guy. He's just a guy who shows up, wrestles, loses, and goes home. Yeah, and I know what would happen to him after this. I mean, I can remember him ending up in a TV match with Orndorff, and uh, they had a good match, and Orndorff would win. And and uh, later on after that, um, basically, he was just like uh, kind of transitioning to work backstage and be an agent, and uh, he'd fill in, like work a house show if somebody didn't show up. Uh, I saw him in that in that way on a certain show I went to in 87 and then by the end of 87 when they had that legends uh, old timers battle royal the, the Meadowlands he wrestled on that and I, that was technically his last official bout so yeah, I mean, and, you know, talk about making me feel old. Tony Gurria was the heartthrob babyface in the 70s, and now he's he's in the old-timers battle royal. But <laughs> I, I always wondered, you know, I always thought Gurria was a talented guy. I always thought he was pushable. And I was, you know, around this time, you know, 82, 83, I was like, why isn't this guy going to Florida or going to Georgia and and getting a you know a mid card push there. It's just like you know, okay, I'm here. I give up. No, I I, I think um, you know I, I hear what you're saying, but I mean I think whatever Vince was paying him, whether it was working prelims or working behind the scenes in the office, he must have been making substantially more than what he would have made going to these other areas. I guess. Sure. I, I, you know, I didn't know that 1983. I didn't know that there was a behind the scenes plan for him. That was just something I was wondering about 40 years ago. Now, on this Baltimore show, they get the dream match. Well, let's let's talk about this match first. Bob Backlund pins Sergeant Slaughter in a Texas death match, and Slaughter attacks special guest referee Rocky Johnson after the match and bloodies him. I mean, a great, simple little feud starter. Like, people are going to want to buy tickets for the next show to see Rocky Johnson get his revenge. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like you say, it's kind of cool to to do that off of a live event like that rather than do it as a TV angle because it just seems so spontaneous and, uh, hey, let's go get tickets to see this. We just saw what just happened, you know? Yeah, and they, they... often did the same thing in every city, but they certainly didn't do that in every city. Mm-hmm. And like you said, they didn't put it on TV. It was a Baltimore only angle. Mm. And I, I kind of miss that world. Yeah, I, I do too. Uh, when, you know, when the WWF machine really got rolling around 88, 89 and, and like you see the same match in like every city uh, or they had like three different tours and, you know, each tour had the same match that really just got really boring and like, uh, paint by the numbers, you know, just really boring. 
I will on the Facebook page occasionally post results and really very rarely do I post anything before uh, 19 after 1988 because that's when they started with that formula and you're right Steve it made sense to do it I totally understand it made sense to do it but you had cookie cutter matches in every city and cookie cutter promos for every match yeah, and cookie cutter performances in the ring sadly yes <laughs> And it worked. It worked for a while, at least. One other major change that went on, summer of 1983, and Steve, I picked up on this as we were recording, and this is its own show if I wanted it to be, but I did want to mention, because it's WWF Summer 1983, September 4th, 1983, yeah, Sunday morning, a nation awakens looking to see Southwest Championship Wrestling on USA Network, but wait. It's Vince McMahon and WWF wrestling. And it is the first show was an hour dedicated to Bob Backlund. The second show on September 11th was dedicated to Superfly Jimmy Snuka. And the third show was dedicated to Andre the Giant. I might have the Snuka and Andre shows mixed up, but it's a big deal. The The WWF is on USA Network. And here we are 40 years later, and they're still on there. I remember that, and and uh, and at the time, like we had a VCR, and and it was I think it was a beta machine, and I wasn't taping the wrestling matches that were on, but when I saw that they were actually going back, and and USA Network was running these historical matches, like the, I, like I I realized I wanted to see Billy Graham lose the title to Backlund, I wanted to have a copy of that. Uh, then uh, I was starting to like say, hey, maybe we should record these programs, and 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 USA. Actually, uh, th- that program, All American, those early days, it was quite interesting because that was when they were showing those matches. Like Bill Watts would send a, a match with JYD beating somebody, or um, Florida would send a Mike Rotunda match. Uh, so you'd see these oddball matches from other territories, and it really was Vince's way of saying, These are the guys I'm going to be looking to pick up in the near future. Yeah, here's here's a preview of what the WWF's going to turn into. Right. Like, you know, I had no idea. Right. Obviously, no, I didn't either. I, you know, another big change that happened in the summer of 1983, and that wraps up our two episode edition of WWF Summer 1983. I feel that we're we're back on schedule with this, Steve. Oh, that's great. Uh, great job by you uh, recapping everything. And uh, I'm really, really excited to start talking about the national expansion as we get closer to 84. Yeah, the, this is the la- next time we do this, which will probably be in October. It will be the last time we talk about the old WWF uh, in 1983 because things are going to be changing real quickly in 1984. It, it's lots of fun coming our way. <laughs> All right, Steve, I want to thank you for all the time you dedicated today into recording two episodes of Sick to Wrestling. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, and thank you, Lou, as well, for hanging in there with us. No, we've been at this for two and a half hours now, and I just want to say thank you to everybody. I want to thank everyone for listening. I hope you enjoy these shows, and I hope you're back next week. I want to thank Brian Last for giving us this forum on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does putting this show together, and this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.